The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you, Scott. Here's what's ahead, everybody. A choppy ride for stocks today. The S&P at one point giving up its gains for the year. But big turnarounds in stocks like Apple have led us back into the green. We'll look at the forces tugging this market in both directions. Plus, from top CEOs to the Fed to Wall Street, everyone seems to be warning that a stimulus stalemate is bad for the economy. But some disagree, and we'll debate if gridlock can still be good for the stock market. And a supercharged SPAC teaming up against Apple, United offers COVID tests, and companies are suing over Chinese tariffs. That's all ahead. We begin with the markets, though. Bob Bassani here with the very latest for us. Bob? And Kelly, we're up near the highs for the day, but it's been very, very choppy trading. So Goldman, Microsoft is helping the Dow out, but there's not a lot of conviction out there. And that's a little bit of a problem. Take a look at our major sectors and uh, major movers here. S&P 500, look at the the mega cap names here. Uh, We're in a 50 point trading range in the S&P today. That's a lot. We were down as low as 3210 early on. They went to 3260. That's a 50 point range. So in and out, all of these mega cap names were negative at the open and then moved into positive territory. This is what I'm talking about, the lack of conviction. They're dominated by momentum traders, as Art Cashin likes to point out. uh, And they go all in the same direction all the time. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon. Generally downtrend, though. Alphabet and Facebook have been tough two-month lows, right near two-month lows at the open that we saw here. The stay-at-home beneficiaries, really it's the same thing. We like to think that, oh, they've been big movers to the upside. But a lot of these names, your, your electronic arts, your Activisions, even DocuSign, these names are mostly sideways in the last month or two. And in some cases, even trending down a little bit. I'd say that with Slack trending down generally overall here. Elsewhere, I think that we have very interesting moves in some of these ETF country uh, movers today. So Mexico, uh, Brazil, Turkey, uh, very interesting heavy volume and big moves on the upside. Not sure what's going on here, but the dollar has been up four days in a row. So weaker local currencies would make the export oriented countries more valuable. Any uh, any materials that they have that are exported or, or goods would be much more valuable. So I think the dollar uh, strength may be playing, uh, uh, helping some of these uh, countries out in terms of making their local currencies a bit weaker. Again, the key problem here, lack of conviction, market dominated by momentum traders right now, still trying to figure out what the right prices are for a lot of these stocks. Oh, that. Not a, not a small challenge uh, often. Bob, thank you very much, Bob Bassani. While today's action has seen this battle between gains and losses, the month is decisively dominated by the bears. The tech-heavy Nasdaq is down more than 9%. The S&P 500 is down around 7%, and the Dow by about 6% as investors digest a resurgence in COVID cases and the next stimulus bill remains in limbo. For more on the markets, let's bring in Matthew Miskin of John Hancock Investment Management and Jason Brady of Thornburg Investment Management. It's great to have you both. Matthew, I looked at your notes here and I see the one line. Q3 was awesome. Q4 is going to be tough. So <laughs> how tough and have we already priced the toughness in? No, we, we think we could see more corrective price action, but we would look at it opportunistically. You know, I mean, this market has been expensive for quite a while now. 
We've dropped about 10% on the valuation of the, the market in terms of P.E. ratio. Uh, we think we can go a little bit lower. But earnings revisions are still positive. They're still growing right now. And the analyst community still sees a recovery in 2021. We do as well. But you got to be selective. We like high-quality stocks, some of those tech names in particular uh, that we were seeing before. We actually like those uh, as, as good earnings growth engines. And those are where we're hiding in right now amidst this volatility. And Jason, I know you're looking to the credit markets for a tell here. What are they saying to you? Well, you know, where we sit uh, with some major indexes there is uh, not too different than when the Fed stepped in April. So hmm. uh, it's not only been sideways for that amount of time, although with some carry, um, it's starting to trend down. The massive amount of issuance is, is starting to weigh on the market a bit. The other piece is recovery values are coming in this year lower than they've been in 25 years plus. Hmm. So I think it's a pretty dangerous, uh, dangerous ride out there in credit. So that's interesting. And let's kind of stay here for a moment, because you could argue that, you know, parts of credit have the same dynamics as parts of the stock of the stock market. So um, if credit is not holding up as well, um, maybe suggesting that it was priced too low or you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> here's here's my question for the stock market. Um, then are we still too high? I mean, do, does the 10 percent or so pullback this month tell you they're now on the same page or not? I think, I think what you see in the stock market relative to credit is a divergence between what we're calling the new utilities of, of some of the tech names, where earnings are excellent, but really it's been driven by PE expansion, and a lot of cyclical names which have really struggled to come off the bottom. Credit tends to look much more cyclical, right? So it's not as though Apple and Microsoft are dependent on the debt markets for funding. They shoot out plenty of cash. Uh, but you know, about half of the small and mid-cap universe is not profitable here. And there's a lot of leverage. What the Fed has done is actually put more leverage in the system, and that makes it even more vulnerable. So this is the bifurcation we've seen. And, and for us at Thornburg, we think we need, you need to have balance in your portfolio across these different kinds of names. And I know you're saying you can stick with some of the higher dividend-paying stocks as, as one area of opportunity. Obviously, you always have to be careful you know, if the dividend's high for the wrong reason. Uh, let me turn back to you, Matthew. And I saw you nodding in agreement there as we were talking about some of the problems in the credit markets. Um, yesterday, Fed Chair Powell said, we've basically done all we can think of. Um, they are all trying to kind of push the honest on to Congress. But what happens now if some of these problems do become persistent uh, for corporate America? Yeah, I think it goes back to the credit markets and high yield right now looks very rich to us. Default rates, in our view, continue to rise. So they're about 8% right now. We think they go to about 12%. Uh, high yield spreads at 500 basis points are not pricing that in. And really the biggest beneficiary across asset right now of, of Powell and the Fed and what they've done has been high yield. And so uh, we believe that that liquidity bridge is, is being built and it doesn't have a, a destination yet. Um, and we really need, you know, COVID under control. We don't want to see these second waves globally. And until we really get a breakthrough on the healthcare front, we are, we're cautious on credit. And we think the fiscal policy catalyst is when you should fade. Uh, we think that's not going to be something that's going to develop in the near term. All right. 
Thank you both. Appreciate it today. Matthew Miskin and Jason Brady talking us through these markets. Let's drill down on tech. Right now, it's the best performing sector. We're, in fact, at session highs with the Nasdaq up 115 points. But it was the biggest drag in the Nasdaq yesterday. In fact, the ongoing correction has knocked the triple Qs, which tracked the Nasdaq 100, down 10 percent this month. And my next guest, also, there's a theme here today. My next guest also says the pain isn't over. He sees another 10 percent downside from these levels for tech stocks. Joining me is Paul Meeks. He's portfolio manager at Independent Solutions Wealth Management and the lead manager of the Wireless Fund. Paul, it's good to have you. Why isn't what you've seen so far enough? Well, the way I look at it is these stocks have done incredibly well, you know, particularly in my sector. You know, 2019, up 30 to 40 percent. And then right before COVID, another screaming victory. And even during COVID, because they were seen as remote work, remote school, remote play opportunities, they did well. We've really only had this correction since Labor Day. And so even with companies that have strong fundamentals, and I'm not making a fundamental call, I would still think where their valuations were, where their valuations still are, that there's some downside risk. It was interesting to hear our last guest, though, differentiate some of these tech players from the more vulnerable parts of the market. He says these are utilities, more or less. They have reliable cash flow. They don't need to rely on the debt markets. Doesn't that argue for them outperforming or or kind of holding in relatively well here? Well, I do think that investors who are investing not just U.S., but global equity portfolios could start to build a tech allocation because I think at full strength, at full weight, you probably want to have 30 to 40 to maybe even 50% of your portfolio represented by the technology sector. And again, the fundamentals here are pretty strong. And yes, over the long term, we will do very, very well, particularly with interest rates pinned to the floor for the next couple of years. It just give us a little bit of break Right. We have only 40 days until the election. We have some real nastiness going on with the Chinese, which really impacts my sector. Hmm. So I think there's an opportunity to get in lower. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the stocks you'd be looking to pick up on further weakness here. One of them is Micron. Yeah. So Micron is a leader in the semiconductor industry. Everybody knows it. It's a contrarian call. And I admit that the quarter ended August, which will be reported in a few days, will be potentially poor. I actually think that the quarter ended November, not so good. But out of all the stocks that I cover, particularly the larger cap names, I think this one can double in price, where the other stocks, even though I love their fundamentals, not as much upside. So what else would be on your list, even if it's a little bit less attractive? I think there's a couple of companies that have given us fresh enough data so we can feel good about them. Adobe recently, NVIDIA AMD, even Roku, I would highlight those four that if you, again, were underweight the sector, we know enough, and we know enough recently about these companies that they could be good buys. So let me then uh, close by asking you about Roku in particular, a newer stock, a higher multiple one. Uh, Why do you like it? So Roku seems to have a very long runway of opportunity, and the company is growing very fast, and when they announce their numbers. They just don't beat the numbers. They crush the numbers and then guide aggressively upwards. And so I think with their fairly small market share today, over time that they can get a bigger, bigger piece of the digital advertising market, it could be really an extraordinary opportunity. Not a cheap stock, as you said, Kelly, but a good opportunity. I see a lot of legs left in the story. 
And to reiterate, you're waiting until these stocks come down a little bit more uh, before you begin buying, even with uh, the, your long-term positive view. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. Paul Meeks of the pleasure. Wireless Fund. Greatly appreciate it. Still ahead from the Fed chair to the Treasury Secretary to Wall Street, the calls for action on a stimulus plan are growing louder. What happens if we don't get one? We'll explore that. Plus, housing remains a hot part of the economy and investors are on the hunt for ways to play it. We're going to speak with the CEO of American Homes for Rent, which has seen demand skyrocket. The stock is up 50% off its lows. And Spotify, Match, and Epic join forces to take on Apple. That's all ahead on The Exchange. Don't go anywhere. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Momentum continues to build for another round of stimulus from Washington. On Squawk Box this morning, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan voiced his support. The sharp snapback has to be prolonged. In, in my view, the stimulus, though, has to be aimed much more precisely than the past. It, it has to be aimed at the people who are still unemployed. It has to be aimed at the, uh, the performance venues and restaurants. Another round of PPP would be helpful to help those restaurants. And the lack of a stimulus package so far forcing Goldman Sachs to cut its economic forecast today, saying, quote, the withdrawal of fiscal support will reduce disposable income in Q4 to roughly the pre-pandemic level. We're lowering our Q4 GDP growth forecast from 6% to 3% on a quarterly basis. Now, Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren has also weighed in today, saying, while I think it would help to do more quantitative easing, I'm not sure it would be nearly as supportive, for example, as fiscal policy, implying there that Congress should act. So can the economy hold up without stimulus? Well, joining me now is Michelle Meyer, head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Global Research. Michelle, it's great to have you. What's in your base case yeah. uh, projection at this point? How do you see the year shaping up? Yeah, so ever since we came back from the Labor Day holiday, we had assumed that the political environment would just make it quite difficult to get another round of stimulus through. So we had changed our forecast back then um, to pencil in a, a 3% growth pace for Q4. And that comes off of a 27% annualized growth rate in the third quarter. So certainly some slowing there um, in terms of, of, of the economy, but still expanding. And, and, and the way that I would characterize it is that the lack of another round of stimulus, it doesn't destabilize the economy, but it does create a speed bump. Um, and, and I think that's what we're going to end up seeing in the data, particularly from the high-frequency data around the consumer. So how, how far are we from the pre-pandemic GDP level? So in other words, we had this huge rebound in, in the third quarter, but do we need more yep. double-digit GDP growth in order to kind of get back to where we were? I mean, it's, 3 to 4% sounds, doesn't sound like a whole lot right now. <laughs> it, you know, yeah, it, it obviously is only kind of slowly crawling along if we run at that pace. So to put this into perspective, um, um, if we're right on the third quarter and we get something like that 27% annualized increase, it would mean by the end of the third quarter, we will have retraced half of the decline 
in economic output as a result of COVID. Um, so that's considerable. That's a lot of progress that's been made. But there's still the other half way to go. Yeah. And that, we think, will be slower. It will be a bit more bumpy. And it will, in part, be a function of policy, both monetary, um, but even probably more so fiscal, given the ability of fiscal policy to be more targeted. It's one, uh, listen, half of the decline is, is a long ways to go. I mean, it, I, I'm surprised it's still that much. It's, it, it does speak to the need to close it quickly so that unemployment doesn't remain yeah. chronically high and all, all of that sort of thing. Is one of the problems, though, that we need more specificity on what would be helpful from Congress? So from your point of view and maybe from the Fed's point yeah. of view and others, is it, hey, just do anything, like any little thing would help? Or is it, no, we need something of a $1.5 to $2 trillion size? So I think in the beginning stages of the crisis, it was do anything, just get money out there as quickly as possible and provide a floor for the economy and offset the loss of private sector output. But now it's about creating targeted response for fiscal policy and particularly trying to get at the parts of the economy that have been hit the hardest. So that's largely in the services part. That's where you have very high levels of unemployment. Um, and, and, and COVID has created these real bifurcations in the economy. I mean, if you think about how consumers are allocating cash right now, they're spending on things again. They're buying durable goods. They're buying housing. They're buying household appliances. They're buying cars. Um, and frankly, there's probably not enough capacity there. But there's too much capacity in the services side of the economy in terms of travel, in terms of entertainment services. So that's a part of the economy that needs the stimulus right now and needs the support to kind of just bridge the gap until demand can shift back to those types of, of services. That's a great way to illustrate it. So final question on the housing front, which has been so hopeful. We're going to talk more about it in a moment. But can housing do yeah. a lot of the heavy lifting to help the whole economy recover? Yes, it's re redistributive, like you said. It doesn't address yeah. some of the chronic problems that are going on. But just mathematically speaking, can it at least help us close the gap, uh, try to get back towards where we were? Yeah, I think it already is. I mean, if you think about the level of home sales right now, we just got that out this morning for new home sales. We're in excess of the pace that we had prior to COVID. Similarly for you know mortgage applications, which are even more leading. Um, so, so I think housing is contributing. It's part of this balance, and it will continue to help in the near term. But that doesn't solve for the fact that there's been you know a good part of the economy that has been significantly below their capacity for a while as a result of COVID. So, yes, the balance in housing the bounce in autos, the bounce in production generally to accommodate the, the increase in demand for, for things, um, it, it helps. And that, I think, has been driving driving the growth, but it's not sufficient. So um, to fully close the gap, to fully get back to where we were previously, it will take time. It will take healing in the economy, hopefully a vaccine and an ability for people to reengage. And in the interim, you need some sort of safety net still, I think, to to provide that cushion. And, and that's where I think the discussion, the debate seems to be in Washington is how to design that properly. Yep, 100%. We'll see if we get anything here in the near term. Michelle, thank you. As always, we appreciate it. Michelle Meyer with Bank of America Global Research. Coming up, the gridlock grind, as we've just been discussing, is a stalemate in Washington. Well, could it be an ideal scenario for the markets or will it undermine the nation's ability to recover from COVID? We'll debate it. Plus, another EV company hits the market and surprise, it's a SPAC. We've got the full details coming up in rapid fire. Stay with us. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. 
Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets are around session highs right now. And what a sawtooth day it's been. We were talking about the sawtooth recovery yesterday. But today is a microcosm of that. Right now, the Dow is up 284 points. But we've been up 1%, down 1%, back up 1%, which is where we sit right now all morning long. The S&P 500 also up 1%, 34 points. It's at 3271 right now. And the NASDAQ, the outperformer by just a touch up 1.1%, 122 points. It's at 10755 Now, I bet you can't guess, but you can see it behind me so you can guess. Utilities is the sector in the leadership position today. Really bizarre. We rarely see that. It's up one and three quarters percent. Technology, more familiar looking there, uh, one and a half percent gain. But then financials and materials are also battling it out for third place. So again, not a clear cut picture of these gains and losses. Healthcare is the only sector in the red right now, down about a tenth of a percent. And here are some of the individual movers that we're following. Goldman Sachs is moving higher following an upgrade to buy at UBS. Firms saying they see several catalysts ahead, including continued efficiency efforts at the company, read cost-cutting. Goldman is up nearly 6% today, and that alone helps explain why the financials are so strong. Penn National is, meanwhile, dropping after it announces a public offering and gets a rating cut at Macquarie. Penn's down nearly 7% today. Uh, Macquarie moving to neutral on the company based on its leverage and its stretched valuation. And Carmack shares are deep in the red. While the company just reported strong results, investors seem to be concerned about their modest sales relative to the newer online competitor, Carvana. We've been talking about it. CarMax giving up about 10% of its value today. It's at 95 and change. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Sue? Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. The United Kingdom reporting its highest daily increase in coronavirus cases since the pandemic started. Although it is important to note the testing capacity has increased over the last six months. But in just one week, Cases surged 95 percent. The recent spike in cases led the U.K. to issue more virus restrictions earlier this week. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy are insisting power will be transferred peacefully following the results of the November 3rd election. Although the top Republican leaders don't directly rebuke President Donald Trump by name, the comments come after the president cast doubt on whether he would accept the election results. Florida prosecutors are dropping charges against New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft for soliciting prostitution. The estate attorney recently lost a key court decision, which then resulted in the judge tossing out video and audio surveillance evidence of the incident. You are up to date, Kel. That's the news update. I'll see you in an hour. All right, Sue, thank you very much. Sue Herrera. While the relentless demand in the housing market continues, our own Diana Olick has a look at some of the stunning new data out today. Diana? 
Yeah, Kelly, sales of newly built homes in August just crushed expectations up 43% from a year ago to a 14-year high. Now, this followed another strong report on sales of existing homes. So housing demand remains high in this new stay-at-home culture of the pandemic. The only red flag is supply. Existing supply is at a record low, and the supply from builders is now almost half of what it was a year ago. Builders simply didn't expect the immediate recovery in demand just after the pandemic hit, and now they are faced with a shortage of land and labor, as well as higher costs for materials. Now, all of this means much higher prices for consumers looking to buy any type of home. Price games are now in the double digits from a year ago, and for existing homes and builders are also raising their prices. So bad news for buyers, great news for the single-family rental market, which is now seeing the biggest demand. One of the biggest players in the space, REIT American Homes for Rent, just saw record leasing and occupancy in its last quarter. And joining us to discuss is CEO David Singlin. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Diana. Glad to be uh, joining you today. Now, you just reported record leasing and occupancy, as I said, and you said you expected that strong demand to continue even past the end of the pandemic. What exactly is driving it? You know, the, the demand for single-family rental is not new. It's uh, been occurring for several years. Uh, COVID has accelerated it, but I don't see it changing into the future. Uh, people realize the value today more than ever uh, what, the, what the value proposition is of single-family rentals. And uh, we're well-positioned to take advantage of this uh, increased demand. Now, you also reported about $6 million in COVID-related bad debt. That is tenants unable to pay. How are you dealing with those tenants? And what do you think about the recent eviction moratorium imposed by the CDC? Is that fair to landlords like yourself? So bad debts uh, for us uh, has a slight uptick. Uh, we've deliberately chosen the markets and neighborhoods that we are in and the weighted average unemployment for our portfolio is, is, is less than a national average. As such, we're seeing, um, in light of the uh, difficult times, we're seeing relatively favorable collection uh, results that are improving from our second quarter results. Um, evictions are always a last resort. Uh, and the eviction moratorium, while it has a temporary uh, impact, uh, long-term, uh, we're comfortable with our collections. And again, we'll use evictions only as a last resort. David, it's Kelly here back in the studio, and I have a similar question to pick up on. Yep. Uh, we've talked about the demand for rental homes, but again, on the supply side, are you going to see increased supply coming from people who are losing their homes because of COVID? Yeah, to begin with, uh, supply is short in all of housing sectors. We've seen a significant increase in supply in the single family rental uh, sector over the last eight years from 13 million to 16 million homes and occupancy has still continued to increase. Uh, we're very comfortable that the demand is very strong for our area. But to your point, Kelly, uh, we are uh, positioned, uh, we have financial flexibility and we have a unique build, uh, um, purpose built um, program where we're building single family homes. And uh, that is uh, driving superior returns to our shareholders as they have better economics. And we, quite frankly, find our residents like them uh, better than the homes that we buy on the open market. And through this, I think we're changing well, uh, the American landscape. 
But you do have, uh, you're facing about 4 million borrowers right now who are in these mortgage bailout programs and could go to foreclosures. Are you, you know, we're hearing that investors are saving up money now to take advantage of that. That is buy homes at distressed prices like you did during the last foreclosure crisis. Are you planning to do that? Yeah, you know, we, we, uh, we have the financial flexibility to take advantage of that if it uh, does present itself. Uh, but uh, today, our development platform provides us the best returns, and that will be our primary uh, channel for growth. But uh, the other uh, channels are, uh, are open. We will uh, take advantage of them, yes. David Singleton, CEO of American Homes for Rent. Thanks so much for joining us. Kelly, back to you. Yeah, one of the hottest parts of a very hot market. Our thanks to you both, David Singleton and Diana Olick. Coming up, SPACs get electric. Everyone's teaming up against Apple and rapid COVID testing arrives at the airport. That and more ahead in today's edition of Rapid Fire right after this short break. Welcome back. We have some breaking news on TikTok. Julia Borston with the story for us. Julia. That's right. A judge saying that the U.S. must delay the TikTok download ban or file legal papers by Friday at 2.30 p.m. Eastern. Now, this comes ahead of a deadline that the president had set for this Sunday. It had been delayed from last Sunday. That deadline saying that the company needed to make a deal, um, ByteDance needed to make a deal in terms of how it was divesting TikTok or selling a stake in TikTok to U.S. investors. So that was already delayed one week. The um, TikTok has filed to try to uh, delay that ban, uh, trying to file to make sure that they are not prevented from enabling users to use or download the app. So this is a judge responding to that suit. Um, we reached out to TikTok. We got a no comment. And I just want to point out, Kelly, that this comes um, amid news today that Kevin Mayer, who resigned as TikTok's CEO in August after just three months that job um, is currently in talks to join Redbird Capital. That's according to sources close to the situation. Kelly, back over to you. All right. A fluid one. Julia, thank you very much. Julia Borson with the latest there. Let's turn now to a couple other stories that should be on your radar. It is rapid fire and here to break on the break on take on and break down the headlines. Phil LeBeau, we welcome in from Chicago, Seema Modi and Michael Santoli. Welcome to all of you. Uh, First up, Momo Nomo. September has been a brutal month for some of the year's biggest momentum plays. The chipmakers, NVIDIA and AMD, they're off about 15% from their recent highs. Apple is quietly on pace for its worst month in nearly two years. Tesla, its worst week since March, and Nikola is down nearly 80% from its record highs and 50% this month alone. Phil, is this all Nikola's fault? It's not all of Nikola's fault. I, I think that Nikola is sort of the poster child uh, for Momonomo. But, you know, look, they have certainly things specific to them that are leading to the uh, sell-off in Nikola's shares. But in terms of momentum, I think you can attribute this to all the things that, that we've heard Mike talk about several times over the last couple of months. It was wound so high, it was due for a pullback, and that's what we're seeing here. And Michael, elaborate on that if you would. Um, which is the tail and which is the dog, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, look, all the superlatives we were uh, kind of throwing out there in August have just gone in reverse. So. I'm not saying it has to be an equal and opposite reaction, because if we're going to go to negative extremes that match the positive extremes from August, we probably have longer to go. But this is also the way markets go in a high momentum move. Think about it. The, the, the first group to sell when stocks break a little bit lower after a high momentum move are the ones who are buying them just because they kept going up. And then you have the ones who say, I own a little bit too much, but maybe I should lighten up. But why would I do that when they keep going up? And so you find like layers of new potential sellers as you go down until you find some level 
of technical support where people basically have cleaned up their uh, positioning enough. And I think that's what we're trying to sort out yeah. right now. And that explains why a lot of the moves feel kind of technically driven as opposed to headline driven and yeah. very erratic. Exactly. Seema, today is an interesting case study. You had Apple down 3% at the lows at one point. I mean, at some point it was approaching losing, what, 25% of its value from the highs. And then now then it's recovered. It's back up and you've got stocks at all time, not all time, at, at session highs this afternoon. It's bizarre. Right. And historically, September is the worst month for stocks. So is this just history repeating itself or uh, are there some fundamental reasons why investors should be taking some money off the table? And are there concerns about whether these companies can continue to grow and command the valuation that they're trading at uh, remains to be seen. I think a company like Apple has had such a strong run. I mean, even Tesla now up, I think, about 400 percent from March 23rd mm -hmm. through August. Uh, and now, of course, September been uh, a pretty bad month for the stock. There were some other fundamental reasons, whether it's battery day not living up to its expectations, the stock split that didn't really seem to yield the type of result perhaps uh, the bulls were expecting. Yeah, fair enough. And all of those names now are some of the worst performers on the month. But perhaps still a sign that not too much has changed is the fact that ChargePoint is going public in a SPAC today. So it's one of the oldest and largest electric vehicle charging networks. It's the latest EV name to go public this way by merging with the SPAC. The deal values the company at nearly two and a half billion dollars and will raise about half a billion in proceeds to expand in North America and Europe. So, Phil, I mean, I don't think we'd be continuing to see deals like this if the market had really turned against either, certainly if it had turned against this segment of the market. Right. And I think there's still a lot of optimism about the growth that we will see from electric vehicles. This is the sixth EV-related spank that we have seen since May. Now, the only one that's closed so far has been Nikola. And you know the problems at Nikola, well documented over the last several weeks, which raises the question, once we start to see these deals close and these EV-related specs, these stocks start to trade, what will be the reaction from investors? I think maybe two months ago, people would have said, yeah, look at Nikola. These, this is a surefire market that you've got to be in these EV-related specs. I'm not so sure now. Now right. it comes down to what it's always been. Does this company have a business plan, and do we see a, a path to profitability? Right. So uh, curious as well, Mike, when do you think the SPAC is going to lose its luster? I mean, is it here to stay? Does it take one big high-profile flop? What do you think? It's interesting. I do think that it will be here to stay. I don't know that it's going to seem like it's as much of a gold rush as it is right now, where everybody deciding to launch one and also being in, in quite a hurry to capture the most trendy theme in the market, which is EVs or has been the most trendy theme. Uh, so the, I think there are aspects of better mousetrap in SPACs. The incentives <laughs> uh, kind of line up. Uh, in terms of basically being okay for, for the shareholders and being a quicker way to the public markets for a young company. On the other hand, I also think there's incentives for the SPAC sponsor to say, let me find the thing that gets me the most immediate pop. Right. And that doesn't necessarily line up with what's going to be the best business down that, the road. That, that is a great point, as always. Well, we, I mentioned Apple a moment ago. Let's stay on the topic here, because several of its biggest critics are forming the Coalition for App Fairness now. It's a nonprofit that includes the likes of Epic Games, Spotify, Match Group, and Base camp among others. Now they say they want to create a level playing field for app businesses and give people freedom of choice on their devices. Seema, it's interesting to me because I can see a company like Epic maybe having less to lose, but Spotify and Match potentially a lot to lose by taking Apple on here. That's true, but at the same time they've been pretty successful if you look at their Price, uh, their stock chart, Spotify is up about 52% so far this year, outperforming the S&P. Uh, it seems like ever since that high-profile battle between Apple and Epic, uh, there was this 
newfound understanding that around the economics, how the App Store for Apple actually works and whether some of these companies have an unfair advantage. It was interesting to see Barry Diller, who recently joined our program on Squawk Box a couple of days ago, who not only took aim at Google, which we know travel companies have had a lot of concerns about mm -hmm. uh, the unfair advantage there, but Apple as well. So that seems to be gaining some momentum, not just from some of these specific companies like Epic, but bigger companies that, uh, that take issue with what they're, what they're doing with That's their App Store. That's interesting. What was Diller's criticism about Apple? The, same, same issue with the same revenue issue. toll taking? Yeah. Exactly. Unfair advantage that, you know, it's not fair, the economics of how it works and how much revenue that they, that they command from the companies that use their App Store. And Mike, it's interesting to me because the App Store itself represents one of the most important growth areas, highest profit margin areas, you know, as, as a component of the services business, which is as a component of why it deserves a higher multiple and, and the rest of it. I mean, it would seem like there's a lot at stake here every time a headline like this comes out, and yet it's hard to even tie it to any kind of stock reaction. Yeah, it's for sure. It's no doubt very important. It's core to the services revenue line and the growth there. But there's, it's hard to isolate in terms of what the exact financial vulnerability is going to be down the road. What's interesting about this movement among the app developers is that they're saying, well, we don't have equal access to the iOS you know, platform outside of the, well, I mean, Apple very much intentionally has created that ecosystem and nurtures it and it's closed and it's self-contained and mm -hmm. they want to control everything about it. It reminds me slightly of the tussle that always goes on with the retailers and the card processing companies hmm. about interchange fees. I mean, we each can negotiate our own. They, retailers think they have too much power and Visa and MasterCard right. say, fine, do it without us if you can. Right. I, I, and it's becoming more common, I think, anyway, to just kind of have people say, hey, if you want to pay cash, great. And if yeah. you pay by card, we're, we're slapping on a surcharge. Uh, finally, before we go today, United Airlines is now becoming the first U.S. carrier to make COVID-19 tests available to its customers. These rapid tests will be available to Hawaii-bound passengers traveling from San Francisco. And it could be a model for other airlines to begin offering tests to their travelers as well. United still down 66 percent from its recent high. Um, Phil, what do you th I mean, first of all, why this route in particular, do you think? Well, because uh, starting on October 15th, Hawaii will say it's going to lift the two-week quarantine requirement that is certainly in place right now. If you went to Hawaii right now, Kelly, you'd have to quarantine there for a couple of weeks. Oh, dang. That, yeah. <laughs> the idea here is that you have this test, and if you can show that you are COVID-free, you can then, you don't have to worry about uh, doing a quarantine. I think this is a great idea and a great move by United. We'll likely see this from other airlines as well. This is one of those areas where you, when you talk with people who want to travel, almost all of them say the same thing. A, it's either a restriction on where I can go, or B, I got to prove that I'm not, you know, carrying COVID-19. And so I think you'll see this after they test this with Hawaii. I bet you start to see this expand within the airline. Industry. But, you know, Phil, Kelly, if I may, yeah. why not make this uh, mandatory? Why make it optional to passengers? Because it seems like this is one of the key ways to get more people to fly. Why make it an option? Well, if you're going someplace that doesn't have a quarantine effect, in effect, why should you? That would be the argument. I mean, if I'm flying to Phoenix and I don't have to quarantine when I get there, why should I have to take a test? I mean, I understand what your argument is, Seema, that, look, if you're going to get on board, you don't want to infect other people potentially. Right. So shouldn't you take one? The flip side of that is you add one more friction point with a passenger, you're more likely to have that passenger say, nah, I don't need to do that. I also wonder, Phil, if like so much has comes down to cost. So I read that these are potentially going to be $250 tests. Right. Who's footing that bill? And separately, Seema, I want to ask you about the rest of the entire leisure and travel industry that I totally agree could get back on its feet if they had something like this available. But Phil, first of all, who's going to foot that bill? 
Well, at least in the beginning, it's going to be the passenger who's going yeah. to foot this bill. Uh, and look, if you're going to Hawaii and you don't want to quarantine for two weeks, I'll pay $250. I'm not crazy about the price, but it's, it's value for the people who want to say, look, I have proof that I do not have COVID-19. I'm free to go wherever I want to go when I get to my destination. And Seema, that's where I wonder when you start thinking through the cruise lines, the casinos, even restaurants. I mean, if this were ubiquitous, if it were very inexpensive, it would be huge peace of mind for a lot of industries. Huge. I mean, for the longest time, we were saying the vaccine was the passport for travel. But now with growing a number of Americans saying they're not going to take a vaccine, testing seems to be the way to get back to some level of normalcy for these big travel companies, whether it's the airlines or even the cruises, cruises which just earlier this week said they were going to mandate testing. But again, it's the onus is on the passenger, the guest, to get that test done and also foot the bill, yeah. um, which for some of these companies, that's the way they have to make it work. So I think it seems to be a step in the right direction, to Phil's point. But um, if they can get the test, the price of it down, the cost of it down, and also man if the states can mandate it, then perhaps you have more people take it, and then you reduce the risk of right. virus transmission. I'm sure if they mandate it, they say, great, then you foot the bill. Mike, I mean, it would be a bummer to get a false positive, though. Uh, Without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, look, peace of mind for everybody on board if everyone has to do it. But, I, but again, there's a lot of, uh, there's just a lot of hoops to run through. You just wonder if it's going to be uh, an industry-wide mandate that, uh, that really can be put in place before, hopefully, we're maybe even through this period. I know. All right. Thank you all very, very much today. Phil, a pleasure to have you here for this special kind of traveler's edition of here. Rapid Fire. Phil Lebeau, Seema Modi, and Michael Santoli. want to get a check on markets because we continue to trend higher. It feels much like the flip side of yesterday afternoon. Yesterday, we kept falling as we went uh, towards the closing bell. Now, we hit 331 points higher on the Dow a moment ago. 1.1% gain. The Nasdaq now up 1.5%. Up next with just 40 days until the election and with major pol uh, political majorities hanging in the balance, we'll look at why the continued gridlock in Washington could actually be a good thing for the markets. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. The battle over the Supreme Court and the upcoming election are gumming things up in Washington. But that gridlock may not be all bad for markets, according to one of my next guests. Joining me now are Larry McDonald, editor of the Bear Traps Report and a CNBC contributor. And Patrick Chovanek is economic advisor at Silvercrest Asset Management. Great to have you both here. And Patrick, I'll start with you. I, is, is the lack of stimulus, at least the COVID stimulus in the next couple of months, the most important kind of negative uh, to come out of this stasis in Washington? Yes. If, uh, if it ends up with uh, businesses failing or people uh, getting into deep economic distress because the aid wasn't there and we continue to have you know, the, the, the suppressed economic activity that we've had all along, um, then yes, that will translate into uh, a slower recovery, obviously. But overall, you know, we've lived with gridlock writ large um, in, in Washington for really since 2010, with the exception of uh, the passage of the Trump tax cuts. You know, even when Trump had a majority in Congress, a lot of things that the market seemed to bank on, infrastructure reform, uh, infrastructure package, um, health care changes, those things didn't happen. And, of course, the other years we've had divided government. So, you know, that lends itself to a lot of predictability, whether that's good for the economy, whether it's good for the country, is uh, we can debate. But for markets, that lends a lot of stability. And really, the, the question is, 
what happens if you actually have a president who has Congress behind him and can right. actually pass things? Right, which bring, which reminds us of Obamacare, Larry, uh, back in, I think, 2010, which is what Patrick's saying. We've kind of had gridlock since then. Um, what do you make of the gridlock we're likely to see for the next couple of months and then what comes after that? I mean, should these be markets that welcome that or that brace for, you know, what's coming? Well, Patrick's absolutely right. Historically, during periods of gridlock and divided Congresses, you typically get decent equity performance. But in this case, you know, we have, we're, we're in a pretty bad recession. We're trying to come out of it, reach escape velocity. Uh, Powell and the Fed made a very, very powerful statement. They wouldn't give investors this month when, when, when they were pressed on the balance sheet, in other words, the, right now we're doing about $120 billion a month of balance sheet expansion, when pushed on that, they basically said they could go up or down. And that's essentially uh, opening the door to a taper. That, to, to our firm, the Bear Trap support, that is pressure on Washington. They desperately, they don't want to go back to the Tea Party austerity days. That was deflationary. You know, this, they're trying to become a more proactive Fed. We have a lot of inequality out there. They're, they want fiscal policy more than ever. They don't want to go back to the dark days of austerity. So you're saying that, that markets still need that action from Congress. Sounds like you both agree on that, Patrick. So, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of what it looks like, right? So I think the Fed has been frustrated with Congress and with fiscal policy, the lack of fiscal policy in general. And that, by the way, is not unique to the United States. You know, in Europe, there's this over-reliance on, um, on monetary policy and the ECB to sort of fix things while mm -hmm. at the same time insufficient action is being taken on the fiscal front. So, you know, I do think that we're going to have a debate going forward about whether fiscal policy needs to be more proactive. And there are a lot of obstacles to making that happen. And I'll give you, Larry, the last word on that. And if you have any advice for how investors should be positioned. Well, this is going to set up for one of the greatest investment opportunities in our lifetime. The beast in the market, that serpent inside the market now, wants accommodation. Uh, for many months now, you've had fiscal and monetary policy. You've had a great relationship, unconditional love. Now the beast in the market wants that fiscal. They will press, so sell the rallies for the next month, month and a half. The market's going to keep pressing the, the politicians over and over again. The market will break the politicians just the way it's broken the Fed in the past. Yeah. Once we get the fiscal heading into the first quarter, value will outperform growth by the most we've ever seen uh, in, in an election year. Wow. We, we expect a 10% outperformance of, of value versus growth over the next 12 months. Well, I like a bold call, and that's what you have given us. Thank you both very much this afternoon, guys. We appreciate it. Larry McDonald, Patrick Germanic, talking us through the election implications. Still ahead, what do Target, Tesla, and Home Depot have in common? Lawsuits against the Trump administration. What they're fighting next. Welcome back. Thousands of companies have filed suits against the Trump administration in an effort to roll back the tariffs on Chinese goods. Remember those? Kayla Tausche joins us now with those details. Kayla? 
Kelly, a lot of those tariffs are still in effect, and the number of companies challenging the Trump administration on the legal authority of those tariffs is now topping 4,000 companies, according to filings submitted to the Court of International Trade in recent weeks. The lawsuits, which include Tesla, Home Depot, Target, Ford, and Taylor, and others, allege that the Trump administration, the White House specifically, did not have the legal authority uh, to institute the tariffs as quickly as it did or to raise the tariffs beyond their first level without congressional approval. Attorneys representing these companies uh, called this corporate response historic, and they estimate that the firms listed in these lawsuits have paid tens of billions of dollars in tariffs. Matt Nicely is a partner at Aiken Gump who's representing many of these companies, and he tells CNBC in part, our clients filed this complaint because the U.S. government exceeded its authority in prosecuting an unprecedented and unbounded trade war against China. China in defiance of congressional limitations. The White House and the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative have yet to respond to these filings or to CNBC's requests. President Trump falsely has claimed in the past that China pays these tariffs, not U.S. importers. Now, regardless of the success, Kelly, of these lawsuits, it represents a remarkable turning of the tide uh, by corporate America against an administration whose tax policy it was cheering just three years ago. And it comes at a time when the Chamber of Commerce, which has long been pro-business and pro-Republican administrations, has endorsed dozens of Democratic candidates. Uh, we are told that the chamber does not intend to pursue its own legal action, though it has also been very critical of these tariffs in the past. No, Kelly? but you're right. There's been a major realignment here of the parties and their interests. But I'm curious, you know, I mean, I mean this is a slow-moving situation. By the time there is an answer here, Trump might be out of the White House. If he's still in the White House, uh, was there authority to override what he's done here? You're right that it will take a very long time, and it's hard to see exactly how this will resolve. And I think that many trade watchers will acknowledge that the Biden administration, a Biden administration or the Trump administration would have very similar trade platforms. Uh, so we'll see how this shakes out in the coming weeks and months, Kelly. All right, Kayla, thank you very much. Kayla Tausche with the latest. And that does it for The Exchange today, but stick around for Power Lunch. Politico's Ben White has a look at how Trump is handling the deteriorating economy on the campaign trail, what that means for his reelection. I'll join Tyler Matheson for that on the other side of this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.